0: We'll make your way to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. We're going to be wrapping up the sequence of events that is recorded in this chapter by the Apostle John and the teaching that Jesus delivered in the synagogue in Capernaum. And Just as a reminder, since we're jumping into the middle of the action, uh, this all launched after what is known as the feeding of the 5,000. After defeating the 5,000, Jesus dismissed his disciples, and then he dismissed the crowds because they wanted to make him a king by force because they didn't have an understanding what the Messiah was actually going to come and do. And so Jesus goes up and prays. disciples are going across the Sea of Galilee. A nasty windstorm comes upon them, and they get stuck. And so Jesus decides he's going to walk out to them. And actually, we're told in the Gospels he was going to walk on by them. But they saw him, and they were scared pretty much half to death because they thought he was a ghost, which just means an apparition of some sort in the form of a human. And so Jesus gets in the boat, they make it over to Capernaum, the crowd wakes up the next morning after they were fed, go looking for Jesus, he's nowhere to be found, and so they assume he's gone to Capernaum, because that seems to be his home base of operations, and that is in fact where they find him in the synagogue they're teaching. Now during the lesson, which begin in verse 22, and we've been walking through the last several weeks, As Jesus began teaching, the crowd began grumbling. They began complaining about the words that Jesus said, particularly the words that he mentioned that we looked at last week about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And since the crowd was focused so much on the physical, which Jesus brought out once they arrived at the synagogue in Capernaum, that they didn't actually come looking for him because they believed him, but because their stomachs were full. Jesus begins teaching them and and makes this statement, Again, about the flesh and the blood, which for the crowd, we have to keep in mind they were Jewish individuals. And so this isn't just taboo. This is something that would have been forbidden by God through his law and through his word. So Jesus obviously isn't being literal about eating his flesh and his blood or drinking his blood, but he's pointing to his ultimate sacrifice, which is going to come on the cross, to which every individual would have to look to and believe in order to have eternal life. Our focus this morning is responding to Jesus. And we're going to see two responses in the crowd from the synagogue this day, and we're going to come to some understanding why, one, people respond to Jesus negatively. Secondly, is how should we respond to Jesus positively and the importance of our and everyone's response to Jesus. So let's dive into it. We're going to begin in verse 60, and we're going to read through verse 71. And the word of the Lord says, You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So let's jump back up to verse 6. Here's a word we got to deal with just to gain some understanding, and that word is the disciple's This is not speaking of the 12 disciples, which is obviously made clear in verse 67. The term disciple meant follower. It meant a student, uh, one who's being trained, one who's under a rabbi, which this crowd came to Jesus initially at the synagogue, referring to him as rabbi or teacher. Now, in Scripture, disciples are also what is referred to as believers or as Christians. They were disciples first, and then they were titled Christians because they began talking like Jesus, acting like Jesus, and doing the things that Jesus did. The term disciples here in verse 60, though, is not identifying these individuals as believers. It's speaking of the individuals who had followed Jesus after the miraculous feeding, and they sat under his teaching. Matter of fact, we were jumped back to the beginning of chapter 6, and we come through this entire chapter. We know that the disciples Jesus is referring to have sat under his teaching twice. He taught them before he fed them with the loaves and fish, and he taught them again here in the synagogue. But after hearing the words of Jesus, the crowd reacted in a negative way. The word hard there in verse 60 is saying that they took offense At the words that were coming out of Jesus' mouth, they heard what he was saying, they heard what he was teaching, and they were offended by his words. They felt they were too harsh. They were intolerable. Though they experienced the miraculous feeding, and they'd heard the truth of Jesus' words. There's actually an example of Jesus' truth coming out by the response to what he was saying. They had come to this point during this worship service where they had had enough. They were done with him. And so their response to Jesus and with their grumbling and their complaining and being offended is revealing their heart and their true intentions. See, so they were more interested in Jesus physically and that He would feed them physically. But Jesus told them from the very beginning that this was why they in fact came to take care of their physical bodies. When He was trying to feed them spiritually, they were more interested in what Jesus could do for them the miracles he could produce, the healings that he could do. They were stuck in their belief on who they thought Jesus should be and what role he should play in their life. They were trapped in the physical things that they could do what needed to be done in order to please God, that they could live a certain life, they could have certain rules and regulations. And they didn't need to put their faith in Jesus. They had it all figured out. And so they become offended because Jesus is now making a statement, and they're coming to the understanding of what he's teaching them, that he is, in fact, greater than Moses. And to them, that is on near blasphemy. For them and their understanding, which is why they brought up the manna in the first place, it was Moses, not God, who gave him the manna. It was Moses, not God, who delivered the law to them. And so when Jesus makes a statement that he is greater Then Moses is on the verge of blasphemy because Moses is said in Scripture to be one of the greatest prophets to ever have lived. And then Jesus makes that statement of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and they're ready to tap out. That's enough. You notice once again in verse 60, they don't grumble and complain directly to Jesus. They didn't go to him seeking further explanation of what he just taught them. And so it revealed their hearts that they did not want truth. They were living in a mindset of what can Jesus do for me or what has he done for me lately? And that is the worst place that we can ever live. You never want to come to that place of God, what have you done for me? God, what have you done for me lately? Yet Jesus, being God in the flesh, knew that they were grumbling to each other about him. And this is what spawns his question in verse 61. Jesus asking the crowd's do my words offend you? Followed by another question in verse 62 concerning his ascension, which would take place after his crucifixion and his resurrection. When Jesus mentions the ascension there in verse 62, it's tied to what he's already been teaching with this lesson that he descended from heaven, and so he's going to ascend back to where he came from. He makes this abundantly clear five separate occasions just in the teaching from verse 22 to 71. Yet the crowds, again, were trapped in the physical. They were trapped in what they could do. After all, they had the law. The law told them the things they should do and the things they shouldn't do. They knew that they were to keep the Sabbath, and they had regulations concerning the Sabbath and what actually defined work and what didn't define its work. They would remember the Passover, and they would celebrate God and, and celebrate what He did for their ancestors. They were doing everything that they felt they needed to do. And so when Jesus proposes what He is proposing through this lesson, Their question is, why would they need someone to do something for them? We've already got the rules. We've already got the steps. We've got the checklist. And unapologetically, Jesus tells the crowd it doesn't work that way. The purpose of the law was to reveal the sinfulness of man and our need for God's forgiveness. The purpose of the Passover was to reveal that God is the one who delivers his people from captivity and from bondage. The purpose of the Sabbath was to have a day set apart where God's people would focus on him and his holiness and his goodness. And so Jesus takes these things, the law and the Passover and the manna that they bring up, and he says, look, these are all foreshadowings of me because I'm going to fulfill the law. I am the Passover lamb. And as he says here, he is the bread of life the crowd's response in verses 60 through 66 revealed to us the way people respond to Jesus that we have to understand, and that's to respond in disgust. It might seem weird as believers to understand this response for people in the world, but it's because they have the same mindset as this crowd that is sitting under the teachings of Jesus Christ. They're able to look him in the face they're able to hear what his voice actually sounds like. They were able to touch him if they wanted to. But they're stuck because they believed they could do it on their own. They believed they had it all figured out. And so people respond to Jesus and the message of salvation and the gospel and forgiveness of sins because people of this world they have their set of rules. Well, if I just do this and I don't do that, then that should define me as a good person. And God wouldn't send a good person to hell, would he? But again, just like the crowds, Jesus says, that's not how it works. He's calling them to faith. The problem with having a set of rules to say, well, if I just do this and I stay within this box here, is that our rules of what is right and wrong is flawed. Our rules of right and wrong are flawed by our sinful nature. And just like the people of the world, their rules of what is right and wrong or what is acceptable is flawed by the sinful nature. And so Jesus looks at this crowd and he speaks to us through God's word saying that he is everything they need. It's not about your rules. That he has been sent by God. He is delivering now words of life. He's delivering words of truth. And if they would believe, which means they would put their faith in him they would trust Him, if they would rely upon Him, then they would have eternal life. And so this is the message that we are taking to the world. And Jesus is revealing that He is in fact the Messiah to this crowd and the one that they were hoping for, but not necessarily the way they wanted it to be. The phrase ascending is no doubt referring to when Jesus ascended and the disciples stood and watched Him go up to heaven. You can read in the book of Acts in chapter 1. But it's also pointing to the time where he is going to ascend upon the cross. The crowds would be appalled to think that the long-awaited Messiah would die what was deemed to be a curse. Their version of the Messiah was to be a king. He was ushering new Israel with all authority and with all power, not to die a sinner's death, not to die a criminal's death. But Jesus is pointing out if they are offended by what he is saying in this moment They're going to be even more offended when they see the way he's going to fulfill what he is saying as he's going to die and sacrifice himself for the sins of the world. And all because they had these preconceived notions on who and what Jesus Jesus should do. And dying on the cross wasn't one of them. They were offended. And Jesus reveals why in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And we have to love Jesus in this moment. We have to love him throughout the Gospels because Jesus knows the crowd's offended. He knows they've been grumbling and they've been complaining. But you know what Jesus does not do? He doesn't autocorrect. He doesn't step back. He doesn't back down to please the crowd, to tickle their ears, which reveals to us Even though the world may be offended when believers say that they are in sin and they are separated from God and they need the forgiveness of God that is only found in Jesus Christ, we cannot back down from that message. We never can. People are still attached to this world need to hear the truth, which is only found in the Word of God, because it is only then can they find eternal life. This is what Jesus says at the end of verse 63, that His Word is full of spirit, which gives life. The statement, the flesh is no help at all. There in verse 63, Jesus is telling the crowd, human effort accomplishes nothing when it comes to receiving eternal life. We cannot work, we cannot earn, we cannot prove that we deserve it. It is God acting on our behalf and what God did for us through Jesus Christ. With the idea of Jesus not backing down, we cannot twist the word of God in order to please a sinful world. We cannot manipulate the word in order to deliver things that people want to hear. We cannot put on a performance for the world to entertain them. We as God's people must stick to the perfect authoritative word of God, for by it people will hear the truth, and through it they're given the opportunity to have eternal life. But Jesus knew what was taking place here. I mean, he was the Son of God, he revealed to the crowds, he knew that there were some there in the synagogue, and that day they were listening to truth. They were hearing words of life, but they didn't believe. Verse 64 John is led by the Spirit to give a little insert of Jesus' knowledge of the people's unbelief, even Jesus' knowledge of Judah, which is brought out more in verse 71. We have to keep in mind, at this moment in time, Judas is one of the 12. He's considered one of the 12 closest following Jesus, which reveals that people can hear the word of God. They can hear the word of truth. They can even experience the presence of God and still not have faith. Judas was right there. He didn't have faith. And so we learn what we need to do. We have to respond by faith. And faith doesn't mean we understand everything. Faith doesn't require us to have some sort of degree in ministry or theology. When Jesus turns his attention to the 12 and he asks them the question if they want to leave, it's at this moment, Jesus is telling them, now's your chance. Now's your chance to decide, as you've just watched this crowd desert me and walk away, He's saying, I'm giving you permission to join them if you need to, if you don't believe that my words are truth. We also have to keep in mind at this moment in time, the 12 fully didn't understand everything that Jesus was teaching. They didn't understand what Jesus was going to have to do for them and dying on the cross. Matter of fact, Peter at one time actually rebukes Jesus for even mentioning it. They didn't understand Jesus." didn't come just to be the Messiah or the Savior, just for the Jewish people, but for the entire world. And they wouldn't come to that understanding until the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit would come upon them. And what it teaches us about faith is faith is not fully understanding. Faith is fully trusting. We don't have to have it figured out. Faith isn't even fully liking what God's Word tells us to do. It's trusting it. Faith is being obedient to it, even if we don't like it, even if we don't want to. Faith is trusting God at his word, and that what God has said for us to do or to not do is for our good, it's for our benefit, it is for our welfare. And we don't have to have the understanding of why. The Bible says we're called to die to ourselves and live by faith because that is the only thing which pleases God. We cannot please God if we don't have faith. Jesus addresses the 12, beginning there in verse 67, he knows full well the role of Judas, which again John points out in verse 71. And in verse 70, Jesus actually refers to Judas as the devil. The word devil there means an ally of Satan, the deceiver, a betrayer. Definitely not a compliment. (laughs) But even in this moment, Jesus still loved Judas. He still loved Judas, and he still spoke words of truth and words of life over him. At this particular moment in time, in verse 68, Peter, who loves to speak up on behalf of the Twelve, he pipes into the conversation. And We have to keep in mind, in the context of this chapter, it was just that morning Peter got out of the boat and walked on water. Of course, he sunk like a rock, but he still got out of the boat and walked on water. Peter's response to Jesus there in verse 68, he's basically telling Jesus, we have nowhere else to go, and we have no one else to turn to. Then he makes his declaration of faith, which he's implying for the 12, because he doesn't know Judas' role, but he's implying that they understand Jesus' words are the words of life. And that they have believed, verse 69, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And in this moment, Peter's starting to get it. This isn't the same confession of faith that he's later going to make concerning Jesus Christ being the Son of the living God, but it's very similar. He's coming out with this understanding about Jesus that Jesus is equal to God because only God is holy. And so that is what it means. The term Holy One of God is a title used frequently throughout the Old Testament. So Peter is applying the title of God onto Jesus who's standing there in the flesh. And we have to keep in mind again, Peter continues to do some pretty rash things. He continues to say some pretty stupid things. He's still going to deny Christ three times, but in this moment, he's understanding Jesus Christ is of equal nature with God. And this is why he alone is going to be able to make the sacrifices that need to be made so people can be forgiven and given given eternal life. At the same time, Peter's not quite sure how this is going to happen. He's not sure how this is all going to play out. Another great lesson of faith there. Just because we have faith doesn't mean we're always going to get it right. The word believed, which is used numerous times in this teaching, is pointing to faith. Again, it means trusting, relying. So Peter's saying they trust Jesus' word is truth. And we know at least 11 of them did, right? The word know reveals our second means of responding is that we respond through experience. Experience must be applied to faith so we can grow in our faith. That's what the word "know" is implying. It's applying experiences. We've come to know, we've come to have experiences with you. The crowd, they experienced the miraculous feeding. They experienced the authoritative teaching of Jesus Christ, but they didn't have faith. Judas. He experienced the miracles. Matter of fact, Jesus, or Judas experienced Jesus walking on water, calming the storm. He saw the miracles. He saw the healings. He saw the authority of Jesus and casting out demons and the enemy. He saw and heard the teachings of Jesus. But Judas didn't have faith. It's going to show we can have an experience with God, but it doesn't necessarily mean we have faith. And you know, when we do have faith, we continue to have experiences with God through His Word as we gather with His people in His presence. And the purpose for those is that we might grow in our faith. We live how Paul instructed the Philippian believers to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And so if we ever wonder why there's people in our lives who aren't growing in their faith, or maybe we've wrestled with our own faith and wonder why we're not growing in our faith, it comes down to what are we learning through faith and experience the presence of God in our life, if I were to walk around this room and I would ask us to share things, how have you seen God's mighty hand on your life? How have you seen Him acting on your behalf? I'm sure we would get numerous stories of people giving the evidence and the witness of God working and moving. And then if I would ask well, what did you learn from those situations? Whether they were good or bad, what did you take from that? How did that help you grow in your faith? I wonder how many people would be able to respond to that, because that's what these experiences are for, is to trust God, believe in Him, and then to grow in our faith. It's experiences that we go through in life, whether we classify them as good or bad, it grows us in our faith, it grows us in our understanding of God's goodness of his faithfulness, of his love, his mercy, his grace, and and sometimes his discipline. It's these experiences that we have, God's mighty hand at work in our lives, and then we take these experiences and we take them to people. We become a witness so other people can grow in their faith or maybe even come to faith. I think it's a sad thing that we don't share the good and the bad times with one another. I guarantee you, you are not the only person going through whatever you're going through. And your witness, your testimony of that event is to help them in their faith, to help them move along and remain in the presence of God. And we call this series, Tell Me the Story of Jesus. But the reality is we come to this place, we enter the Word of God, we hear the truth, we experience His presence, we experience His, his voice in our life and His Spirit moving so we can, in fact, go tell others the story of Jesus. Tell them why we've placed our faith in Him. To tell them how we are living by our faith, and why we continue to live by our faith. The next thing we see in this passage is drawn out in verses 64, 70, and 71, and is this, that God knows how people will respond. Now we already covered this a couple of weeks ago when we spoke about predestination. If you hear that word and it makes you cringe, let me make sure you have an accurate definition of what predestination is. Predestination is set on the truth that God is an all-knowing God. And therefore since God is an all-knowing God, God knows who will or who won't accept Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. It is not preselection. It's speaking of God's wisdom. The problem with predestination, as some people take, is predestination is not a cop-out for God's people to not go out and share the good news. God knows who's going to be saved. We don't. That is his privilege because that is his wisdom. We don't have that privilege because we don't have that wisdom. This is why we are commissioned, commanded, and empowered by God to be his witnesses, to share of our faith and our experiences that we've had with him. And so we can't go into a conversation assuming, well, if I shared about Jesus, they wouldn't accept him anyway. We don't have that wisdom. We can't even go into a conversation. If we wanted to invite someone to church, and if we came with the idea, well, they would never come anyway, we don't have that wisdom. We aren't given that privilege. It's not our place, it's not our role. Only God knows. And so Jesus is pointing out God knows who's going to answer his call. God knows who's going to come to him. The Bible says that we are just to be ambassadors for Christ, God appealing, making his appeal through us. That's our role. The final thing we see is seen in through all of this sermon, beginning in verse twenty two and wrapping up in verse seventy one. And that is how we respond is imperative. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that if an individual does not place their faith in his words, in his life, his death, his resurrection, and his promise that he's going to return, then that individual does not have eternal life. As I mentioned several times during this section of Scripture, he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. But in this particular message or lesson that Jesus is teaching, verse 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in whom he has sent. Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verses 47 and 48, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. In our passage this morning, verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are Spirit and life. And it's because God is for us, not against us. He makes it abundantly clear throughout His word, Word that there is no way to have eternal life and to receive it except through His Son, Jesus Christ. There is no other way. That's it. There's no other way, and we're commanded as God's people to testify to the world with an awareness. Just as it happened with Jesus, there are going to be some who are going to believe, and there are going to be some who are going to turn away. But again, it doesn't give us permission to not share the good news. So we have to be like Jesus. We we can't back down from preaching the Word of God. We can't back down from living out the Word of God. Because through this passage, we know that it is only the Word of God which brings life. It is only the Word of God which people can be saved and be given eternal life and be given the Spirit of God. And the Bible says we are to take this Word. We are to take our faith. We are to take our experiences of God. And we are to go proclaim the good news, but we are to do it with patience and grace. With love. We also must be like the second response that even if the word of God is too hard to understand, we still obey it. And we're still going to trust it because we know it's truth. This brings us to my final question this morning Is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Have you found forgiveness? through his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and be given eternal life. Now, if you're here this morning and you're like, well, I don't know, or you know for sure that you haven't, then I want to share with you the gospel we preach. See, God, who created the heavens and the earth, loves you. And he didn't create you for your job or your family or the relationship you're in. He created you for a relationship with him. And it's your sin which is separating you from that relationship. And just as Jesus points out to this crowd, the flesh is no help at all in this battle. There's nothing we can do to remove our sin problem. That's why Jesus Christ came. He lived a life perfectly according to the word and law of God. He died on a cross, taking the full wrath of God upon himself for our sins. And they placed him in a tomb, but he rose three days later to show he has the power over death and the authority to forgive all sins. And the Bible says, if we believe that in our heart, we trust that in our heart to be true. And we confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and our need for forgiveness. The Bible says we will be saved. It's nothing we can do. It's everything Jesus has already done for us. And if you're here this morning, you've yet to make that confession of faith, that confession of trust. I'm going to be standing down here. I'm going to invite you to come down the aisle when we sing this final song. You can just sit down here in the front. You don't have to stand if you don't want to. And I'll sit with you and I'll pray with you and celebrate with you because today would be the day of your salvation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Even those parts that are hard to read and hard to understand or even we wonder why, what does this have to do with me? Lord, every word that's in this book, this Bible, is your voice. And it's for our benefit and our good. Father, I pray you just give us a desire to be bold for the faith desire to be bold in sharing the gospel message that we have accepted so others can come to faith father we can make up rules and regulations and laws and legislations but nothing's going to change this world except you and people coming to know you as their lord and savior i thank you lord that you give us the example of what we to imitate in your son is that we don't we don't have to back down from speaking truth we don't have to be ashamed of it because your word reveals not everybody's going to hear it, but those who do come to life. And Father, if there's someone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or know for a fact that they are not saved, I pray that your spirit would move them down the aisle and they would let it be known that they are confessing you now as their Lord and Savior. Forgive us if we failed you in any way here this morning pray you continue to be glorified and your will will continue to be done and praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.